0: Well, good morning and welcome to Soul City Church for everyone here and in our overflow space. How are you doing this morning? Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's more like it. All right. Good. It's snowing outside like the cute snow while we still like it kind of snow. So that's fun. That's exciting. Uh, I'm so glad to be with you. My name is Jarrett Stevens. I'm one of the lead pastors here at Soul City and I love, I love the Christmas season. I love everything about it. I love all of Christmas. I love it. And I love when we get to kick off a brand new teaching series, and we're kicking one off today called The Genius of Jesus. As we make our way towards Christmas, uh, we want to understand really the, the whole story as best we can. And specifically, if we're ever going to know the God of Jesus, then we have to look to the life of Jesus, not just the baby, but the man, his teaching, his miracles, his ultimately death and resurrection, doing for you and I what we could not do for ourselves. So for the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at The Genius of of Jesus. And today what I want to do at the end of our time is give you a very real, very practical next step that you can take to really kind of recenter your heart around the genius of Jesus. As I said, I I love this time of year. I love the the traditions that come out this time of year, the things that you only do around Christmas time that I absolutely love. I love the Decorations that you would just be weird if you kept up all year. So I love all the decorations. I've made many trips out to the garage, carrying the box in, unpacking the box, going, and taking the backs back. I really love it. Uh, I love, so I love that. But I do, I do love, once it's all up, I love the decor. I love the songs, all that we sing, right? Again, weird to sing Christmas songs in July. So we sing, we try and cram them all in until we get sick of them. So at this point, I love them. Uh, I love the movies, all the movies that you watch this time of year. I mean, there's so much packed into Christmas, isn't there? the characters that, that are around Christmas, the stories that you've heard maybe your whole life and that are part of the Christmas story. In fact, you probably know more about Christmas than you, than you even realize. In fact, you, you may even be a Christmas expert without realizing it. So here's what I want to do for you to kind of you know, show off how much you know about Christmas. I want to have you turn to the, someone next to you, and I want you to share in as few words as possible. So like as few words as you can say. I'm going to have you describe a Christmas character. So I'm going to name a Christmas character, and then you have to turn to the person next to you and see who can describe them in less words. Does that make sense? Now, it's not really a competition, but let's be honest, it's a competition. So I want you to turn to the person next to you, and I want you to describe Santa Claus in as few words as possible. On your mark, get set, go. (laughs) Go. All right, stop. Pretty good, pretty good. How many of you said jolly? Oh, what a great word. Don't you want that to be said of you? Oh, they're such a jolly fellow. All right, so, all right, that was pretty good. They're pretty good and pretty easy. Come on, that was a lob. All right, so we'll go to the next one. Uh, Rudolph, turn to the person next to you. Describe Rudolph in as few words as possible. All right, it, sh- it shouldn't take this long. You should be done by now. two things, reindeer, red nose. That's really it. There's nothing else to talk about other than not playing reindeer games. Like maybe that's the other thing you could say. All right, so uh, one more, Uh, Buddy the Elf, Buddy the Elf. Go ahead and describe Buddy the Elf. Other than awesome. A little harder. A little harder. We love Elf. We love that movie. It's a tradition for us that we love to watch. A little bit harder. I heard some of you say tall. Sure, kind of. But yeah, it's all right. It's all right. It's a tougher one. Here's the last one. Last one, last one, last one. I want you to turn to the person next to you in as few words as possible. I want you to describe God to them. Go ahead and describe. Ah, you guys totally didn't do that. I was a setup. I'm totally messing with you. How are you going to describe God in as few words? (laughs) And I do want to say that you were not playing along with that one. No one really turned to the person next to them. They're like, nope, no Christmas characters. Yes, nope, not theology. Not going to do that today. And of course, I would never ask you to do that, to describe God in as few words as possible. That's not even the point. But the problem is that when it comes to Christmas time, so often we know so much of the wrapping paper, but we miss the gift of Christmas. And so we know all the characters and stories, and it's fun. All the songs, traditions, all those things are fun, but you can go through this whole season and miss... God at the center of it, and the point of it all. And so when it comes to what you think about God, this is a really important question for you to consider this Christmas. This, is, this will fundamentally shape how you celebrate Christmas, is your view of God. So a question for us to consider as we go into this genius teaching of Jesus today is what do you think of when you think of God? What do you think of when you think of God? If you had to close your eyes and describe, okay, how would I describe God? What do you think of when you think of God? Maybe for you, it's like, well, I don't know, white beard, lives up north, surprisingly a lot like Santa. So let's push past that. And what is the essence, the core of God? Listen, we all have different thoughts about God, every one of us. And you may have been follower in relationship with God for a long time. You may be brand new to this whole thing. All of us have our thoughts about God. And how you view God determines what you do with God. How you view God determines what you do with God in your life, what you do with God this Christmas. And the genius of Jesus that we're about to see is that he has a way of telling stories that turn what we think about God on its head and reveal God for who he really is and simultaneously reveal us for who we really are. And so I want us to look at a story about God and about us. And so if you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Matthew 25, Matthew 25, and you can grab one of these gray Bibles if you don't, both here and in the overflow space as well. There should be a gray Bible right in front of you. Grab that if you don't have a Bible and open that up to page 694 in the gray Bible, 694. Let me just say a quick word about this. We're so serious about you knowing the God of Jesus that if for whatever reason you don't own a Bible, so for whatever reason in your life right now you don't own a Bible, and you're serious about exploring who this God is, then this is really easy. We can solve this problem right now. We want you to steal a Bible from church today. I want you to hear like the pastor is saying, please steal a Bible from church today. And then to make it more fun, like put it in your stocking and make it a little gift to you. But if you don't own a Bible, steal a Bible from church today, we can fix that for you because we want you to know the God of Jesus. We want you to know him as your Lord and your Savior. And so let me give you some context to this story in Matthew 25. This is well after the birth of Jesus and what we celebrate at Christmas. This is actually towards the end of the life of Jesus. And he's in a series of teachings where he's using a specific teaching style called parables. He's teaching in parables. Parables basically are stories that use everyday elements, common elements, but Jesus gives them a much deeper meaning. So at first pass, everyone kind of gets it. They can relate to it. But then the more you sit with it and think about it, the deeper and deeper and deeper the story goes. It's a powerful form of teaching. And so he's teaching him parables. And this parable in particular is one of my favorite stories of Jesus. In fact, I'd go so far as to say this is a central story to my life. It's shaped my view and my relationship of God and my understanding of myself. And this parable appears a couple different times. Uh, here we're gonna look at, it's called the parable of the bags of gold. They should have workshopped the title a little bit more than that. It's not a great title. It's very specific and very clear. In other places, it's called the parable of the talents or the parable of the minas, which are both measurements of money. And just sort of, this is a really important context. I think we'll open your eyes maybe if you've heard this story before. So for context, as best as theologians and biblical historians can understand, Jesus is going to talk about bags of gold in the story. Each bag of gold roughly represented, uh, give or take 2,000 years of economic fluctuation, about $500,000 in our economic understanding today. So each bag of gold that we're about to get to, half a million dollars each. Keep that in mind for context and see if that doesn't kind of raise the stakes of this genius story of Jesus. Matthew 25, verse 14, it says this. Again, because he's in a series of teachings. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey, Who called his who? Who called his servants. Circle, that's underlined. That's important. It's not really important. We're about to see. He didn't call his financial advisors. He didn't call his closest friends. Didn't call his business partners. Didn't call his board of directors. He called his employees, his servants. And he entrusted his wealth to them. Now, this is really interesting. He gives over. Portion of a part of his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold. Okay, math people, start working. Five bags of gold. To another, two bags. And to another, one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. So Jesus gives us some real specifics about the bags, and then some general details. There's a master. He goes on a journey. That's not the important part. The important part is the bags. So for those of you who are kind of math wizards, finance folks, add it up. If each bag is at five hundred thousand dollars, and there's eight bags so far, how much money are we talking about? Four million dollars. So can you get the weight, the stakes of this story? There's a guy. Who has a lot of money and he entrusts $4 million to his servants. So what do we know so far about the master in the story? What can you deduce so far from these few verses? Rich. Yeah, he's probably very rich that he's giving this much money away. Uh, Another thing you can tell here so far in the story is that he is trusting. That's a lot of money. Like your boss may not even trust you like with the budget for the Christmas office Christmas party, right? Like this is a lot of money that he is entrusting to his servants, okay? And it also reveals to us that he's done his homework. He knows enough about each of them to know what to give to them, what to entrust to them. And it's not a judgment call. It's not a judgment statement that the one with five is better than the one with one. It's about assessing their ability and what they can handle. And so he gives accordingly so as to not overwhelm or underutilize these servants. So we know that about him. What do we know about the servants so far? Not much. They're servants, and they just got... The deal of a lifetime. They just had an un, like, unbelievable, unprecedented opportunity laid out to them. And uh, there's an author, Ken Bailey, who has written about this story, written a book about this story and studied this. And what would be understood in Middle Eastern culture in that day was that there would be an implicit promise given from the master to these servants that a portion of whatever they made of profit would be given back to them. That was kind of the unspoken, implicit deal here that if, hey, if you go do something with what I'm giving to you, there's a portion of this, there's a part of this that's actually going to be yours in the end. So that raises the stakes a little bit too. Like, oh my gosh, I've been entrusted with this money. Wow, I have an opportunity to really actually not only earn something for my master, but actually earn something for myself. So this is the chance of a lifetime for these folks. An act of gigantic generosity and tremendous trust. So let's look and see what they did. Really important. Let's look for ourselves in this story. Verse 16, the man who'd received five bags of gold went, what's the phrase? Went at once. Circle that. Now, why is that so important that he went at once? Well, because if that was you, you'd probably be thinking, oh man, I don't want this guy to come back and me have missed my opportunity. Or he may come back and change the terms of this deal. So I better get to work at once. Or you may have looked at that and said, wow, I have an incredible opportunity. I'm going to have a lot of work. If I'm going to figure out how to earn a profit on this, I need to get to work at once. All we know is that there was initiative and drive and a sense of responsibility when it came to what was entrusted to him. He went to work at once. And what happened because of it? He gained five more bags. Pretty good return on investment. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But now here's the turn of the story. But the man who received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now, I uh, didn't get a degree in finance. I know a lot of folks in our church do work in the financial uh, industry. It's part of maybe what you do during the day. I didn't get a degree in finance or management. I I majored in biblical studies with a minor in theater. So, you know... (laughs) World's my oyster, really. <laughs> this, actually, this is the only job I can do with that education. There's no other options for me. So thankfully, I found it. So I, I, that's, not kind of, that's not the world that I come from. But I, I do know that the dig a hole in the ground and bury it financial plan, not the best plan. Would you agree? There's not a lot of wealth diversification with the hole in the ground strategy. And it's easy to look at this guy and go, oh man, did he miss it? But I just want you to pause for a second and think, what would you do? Like if your boss came to you and said, hey, here's half a million dollars, figure it out. Because that's all we got from the story, figure it out. What would you do? How how would you respond? Can you understand why at first he went, oh man, I don't want to mess this up. So I better, as long as I can give it back to him exactly as he gave it to me, I can't lose. I can't fail if I don't. And so he adopts a strategy that many of us have adopted in our lives. You can't lose if you don't play the game. So he decides he's just going to play it safe. And he lets fear take the wheel, and he grabs a shovel and digs a hole. And I think for many of us, for many of us, when it comes to the things of God or the things that God has entrusted to your life, I think many of us, if we were to be honest, myself included, are far more like this third guy than we are the first two that with the things that have been entrusted to us, maybe we're scared, we won't know what to do, maybe we think we don't have enough, and so for whatever reason, we let our fear dictate our decisions, and so we kind of just sit on our hands, we bury the bag, and we... Our plan is to give it back to God just as he gave it to us. Because you can't lose if you don't play the game. So let's see what happens. The master eventually returns. Verse 19, after a long... Time, again, Jesus, not with the details here, just a long time. The master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Now, I love this. Watch this interaction. Master, he said, you entrusted, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. I love this. Verse 21, his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. Pause. Really? That's a few things? It's like two, two and a half million dollars. That's a, f- that's a few things to you. That shows you the perspective of the master and the overwhelming abundance of what he already has. If that's just a few things. You've been faithful to a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. And I love this next phrase. Now come and share your master's what? Your master's happiness. happiness. Come and share in your master's happiness. Same thing happens with the second guy. The man with two bags of gold came and said, Master, you see, you entrusted me with two bags of gold, about a million dollars. See, I've gained two more. I made that million, two million his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Now, this is the apex high point of this genius level story of Jesus, because it's an awesome moment. You think about it. These servants turned $3.5 million into $7 million. That's a good return on investment. And you can understand why the master would be happy. Why do you think that the master is happy? Why would he say, come and share my happiness? Why would he be so happy? Well, our first thought may be because he just got more money. He just doubled his investment. But clearly, if this much money is a few things to him, do you really think he needs more money? The happiness comes from the servant taking a risk of faith. From getting to work at once. From not letting fear grab the wheel. And for living a better story. That's the master's happiness. And he says, come and share in it. And this phrase also implies, from the best we can understand from the storytelling style of Jesus, come share in your portion. Come share in your part. You earned this. You went to work. Come and share and delight in this. So this is a party at this point. I mean, if, the, if this is happening and you were there in that moment, there is a celebration. Someone's throwing confetti, Cool in the gang, starts playing in the background somehow. People are throwing coins like Scrooge McDuck. Like it's an exciting, exciting moment. But then the story turns. And this is very indicative of Jesus' teaching style. There's a turn. It's not the end of the story yet. And we get to the third servant, and I want you to pay attention to the words he uses to speak to his master and how different it is from the first two. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are, now listen, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. And the audacity of this moment. See, here's what belongs to you. And you can just see like dirt still falling off of the bag of gold. See, here you go. Just as you gave it to me, I give it back to you. Now, there's a couple things going on here that can get a little bit lost in translation from a Middle Eastern story from 2000 years ago. So let me kind of break down some of the language and the implication of what's behind it. Let's go back to verse 24 when he says, I know that you're a hard man. I know that you're a hard man harvesting where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seed. What's he saying there? Basically what he's saying is, I've heard the stories about you. There's no way someone can have all of this and have it still all be on the up and up. I I know that you're a rough man, a difficult man, a challenging man. I know that the only reason you got here is by being tough. I know that you're a hard man and I know that all this money didn't come to you legally. That's actually the implication of what he's saying here. That's a bold move when you're handing back the bag just as you got it. It's a really bold move. In other words, what he's saying to the master is, listen, I know where you're from. You're from Chicago. I know how y'all roll. I know how y'all roll. And so rather than go up against that, I'm just going to give it back to you the way you gave it to me. This is some serious first century shade that this dude is throwing at his master in this moment. Not only did he not do anything, but then he has the nerve to call him out, call out his reputation in front of everyone else. And this is a really, really, really powerful and important moment. He wanted to let the master know, and I believe this is implied in the story, that he didn't steal any of it. So it's like, I didn't steal any of your money. I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't steal it. I didn't take it and waste it and blow it all on all kinds of stuff or blow it at the club like some kind of prodigal son. I'm giving it all of it back to you just as you gave it to me. I have met the bare minimum requirement of what has been entrusted to me. I'm giving you back what you've given to me. And this is a really, really, really important moment because he decided in that moment to play it safe. He had the opportunity of a lifetime. And he would spend the rest of his life regretting his decision. Because the master trusted him. But he refused to trust the master. The master trusted him. But he refused to trust the master. Which I think is really important for us to pay attention to. Why? Why did he do that? And how is it that we actually do that ourselves in our own lives when it comes to God. He let his story about the master become his reality. I know, remember that? I know you're a hard man. I've heard the stories about how you kind of earned what you've got. I know all about you. And we do the same thing. Honestly, I do. At least I'll, I'll lead out with myself. I do the same thing. I'm a master storyteller when it comes to how I view God and how I view others. I've got all kinds of stories. I mean, we could have one little interaction it, five minutes, and I've already got a story written about you in some part, some way. We're master. We are, you, each of us, are actually like, Pulitzer Prize-level so writers of stories when it comes to the stories we form about God and about others based out of our own assumptions, based out of our own misconceptions, our own prejudices, our own biases. All of us have our own way that we like to write stories. And what so often when it comes to the stories we form about God and about others is that we forget which genre we're writing in because we're actually writing fiction, but we believe that it's fact. And it's all rooted in fear. And so I have my stories about God and you have your stories about God. Listen, I know you have stories about me. I know that as one of the lead pastors here. How could someone be this smart, this handsome, this talented? I get it. I totally get it. We all have stories. We're all masterful story writers. And so the question for us to consider is what are the stories that you keep forming in your life actually keeping you from? Because all of us form stories about God and about others. So what are the stories that you keep forming? You keep writing about others? What are they actually keeping you from in this world? See, for this servant, he had a story that he formed about the master being untrustworthy. And that story that he formed kept him from experiencing the master's happiness. It kept him from his own personal financial reward. It kept him from growing in faith and in trust. It kept him from experiencing what the other servants had already actually experienced. He formed a story and it kept him from reality and what was possible for him. So let me just explain how this works. So for me personally, uh, for the longest time, one of the stories I would written about God, again, fiction that I believe to be fact, was that all God really wanted from me was to be a good person And that if I was a good person, and I and I went to church, and I even got involved in church, and I did good things for God, and I didn't do as many bad things, then God would be good to me. That was the deal we had. As long as I'm good, He'll be good to me. And what does being good to me mean? Well, it just means basically keeping any bad or painful or difficult circumstances away from my life. That's all. And so I believed my fiction to be fact, that that's who God was. And that's the story I formed about God, that that's all that mattered to him, was that I was a good little soldier. And what it kept me from was real intimacy with God for many years, half my life. What it kept me from was actually trusting God with my life, because my faith was in my story and my actions, What it kept me from was real grace because I was trying to manage my whole life in such a way that I never gave myself the gift of receiving God's grace for me because I didn't need God's grace because I'd already worked out the whole racket. And it all came from a story I formed about God that that's what mattered most to him was that I was a good person and I did good things for him. And if I did that, then he would be good to me. Do you see how we can write stories and how they can take the wheel of your life? There's stories that you formed about God and about others that are actually keeping you from knowing them, keeping you from what God has for you. So what are the stories that you've formed about God? What are some of the stories you've formed about God? Maybe a story that you're writing and you're editing right now is that God's mad at you because of things you've done in your past, because of things you're doing right now that in fact, maybe even the reason you're here is to try and convince God you're not as bad as you think he thinks. And your assumption is God's basic disposition towards you is anger. It's a story. Maybe for you, one of the stories you've formed is that, well, God grades on the curve, And so it doesn't really matter the decisions I make on a daily basis because, you know, it's all going to kind of work out in the end, or at least I hope it does. So I don't need to pay attention to the things like my integrity or the choices that I make or the actions that I have with others because it's all going to kind of work out on the curve. That's a story that you've written. That's not in the Bible. That's just a story you've written. Or maybe a story that you've written is that that God is missing an action when you need him most, you're hurt, you need healing, you've lost hope, and you haven't heard from God for whatever reason, and so your story is that God doesn't care, that God must not care. He cares about everyone else, apparently, but he doesn't care about me or this specific area of my life. Do you see what happens? When we write our stories about God and we forget what genre we're writing in, though those are actually works of fiction, but we believe them to be fact and they can have a dramatic effect on your life. As can the stories that you write about others. Same thing. You write stories about others. All of us do. So oftentimes we write stories about others, whole groups of people. You can write stories about whole groups of people. Well, these people always act this way. Or these kind of people always live in these kind of neighborhoods. Or these kind of people always vote that kind of way. That story, friends, that's not fact. That's your story. It may have fragments of fact in it, but it's mostly a work of fiction. Or maybe for you, the stories that you write about others, maybe there's a story you're writing right now that there's a, been a fight, or there's been a breakup, there's been a... Um, a point in a relationship where it has ceased to be what it once was. And your story is you're right and they're wrong. Period. End of sentence. It's a short story. (laughs) You're right. They're wrong. You're all right. And they are all wrong. Not possible. That's a work of fiction. That's not fact. And you know that. But it's a story that you can write. And in so doing, you write someone off in writing that story. Maybe for you, a story you've written about someone is based on a bad experience you've had with them or a bad interaction you've had with them. You've made that bad experience the whole of their existence. And so now all they are to you is that moment. You neglect the complexity of their humanity and how God has uniquely wired them. You neglect to even consider the fact that maybe it was an off day or maybe there was fault there, but it's not all theirs. And so you make one bad experience the whole of their existence. And you can write them off in that way too. It's amazing the power that stories have. And when we form our stories, what they can actually keep us from. And the stories that you keep forming, that I keep forming, keep us from what God has for us, so much of what God has for us. And this is the genius of Jesus in that in one little story that we looked at here today, He kind of turns the rock over, and all of our little stories get exposed. All of our little stories about God and about others, and we have to decide what we're willing to actually do with them. So let's see what happens in this story as we wrap it up. Verse 26 the master is speaking to that third servant, the one who just accused him of being shady. Verse 26 his master replied, (laughs) You wicked, lazy servant. And I love how he just dishes it right back to him. Oh, oh, so you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. That's your story and you're sticking with it? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Hello, five-year-olds have savings accounts. You didn't even think to do that, verse 28. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. Now, if you're the guy who has 10 bags in the moment, you're like, woohoo too soon too soon i misread i misread the moment right so he gets one more bag added to him for whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance whoever gets it gets an abundance but whoever doesn't get it whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them now this is where jesus ends the story and throw that worthless servant outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Nice story, Jesus. (laughs) Way to end on a positive note. But you see, this is the genius of Jesus, friends, is that he simultaneously tells a terrific and terrible tale about a master who is far more generous, generous beyond reason, who trusts and entrusts his people with resources, with relationships, with opportunities, with seasons of life, and invites them to make much of them. And as if that wasn't enough, he then invites them to enjoy and experience his joy as we bank our lives on him. It is a terrific tale. And he tells us, in this one little story, Jesus says, here's what you need to know. There's basically two types of people in the world. There are those who go all in and bank their very lives on God, and there are those who sit back and play it safe. There are those who say, God, I will take a risk. I will go all in with you. And there are those who grab the nearest shovel and dig a hole and say, I'm just gonna wait till the end. I'm just gonna hold out because I'm so afraid of not doing it right or not having enough or not knowing what to do that I'm just going to kind of avoid failure by not playing and getting involved. So, which one are you? Which one are you in that story? Let me ask a better question that gets you a little bit more off the hook. Which one do you want to be? What do you want to be said of your story, of your life? Which one do you want to be? Someone who sits on their hands and plays it safe in some vain attempt to try and save their life or someone who says, God, it's all a gift. It's all a gift. This isn't mine, it's his. And so I'm gonna go all-in. I'm gonna trust God with every aspect of my life because here is the great and good news of Jesus is that there is grace, more than enough grace, for bag barriers like you and me. In fact, in God, we have a space, a place where we can begin to practice faith. In fact, I would argue there's no safer place in the universe than with God. That God is a safe place to stop playing it safe. That's good news. That God is a safe place for you because you can actually have relationship with Him. He's not your employer, He's your father. You're His child. He loves you. He's already entrusted you with incredible resources, relationships, opportunities. He trusts you. And he invites you to participate with him and what he's given you in this world. God is a safe place to stop playing it safe with your life. And so the question is, will you? Will you? Who will you be how will they tell your story one day? Because one day the master will return, that we know. One day the master will return and he'll ask you what you did with your one and only life and you don't get to choose the time or the day of his return, but you do get to choose what you'll do today. You do have that choice. Not one day, not someday, but today because you can't outsource your obedience to someone else or some other time. It's ultimately up to you and to me. And you can't save your life by playing it safe. And thankfully, there's no safer place for you to stop playing it safe than in relationship with God. And so I wanna give you an opportunity to practice what we talked about here today, to do a little homework. I know everyone loves homework, so I wanna give you a little bit of homework. This is a way for you to practice to stop being safe, playing it safe in the context of a safe, loving relationship with God. A couple thoughts. First is our Christmas store coming up this Saturday. I think it's really easy to hear about this. What an what what unbelievable opportunity we have. We are so privileged to be able to partner with Brown and Debt. It's an awesome partnership we've had since we started the church. Love them. And so you hear us talk about that. You go, oh my gosh, only almost 2,000 Gifts and coats and all that, and 300 volunteers. Man, that sounds amazing. I hope they have a great time. I hope that goes really well for them. And I get it. That's I totally get it. Can I just push in a little bit? Are you playing safe? Because you know, oh, I got to give up a Saturday, or oh, I got to go over to Target, especially this time of year. That is like a suicide mission. I don't. (laughs) And I have to. I have to get this. I spend money on people I may not even know or will ever see. Yeah. What an awesome opportunity what a safe way to practice not playing it safe anymore so i want to encourage you for whatever reason if you've missed signing up or being a part of it sign up show up be here and see what god does we don't want you to miss out on that to be kept from the incredible experience of what goes on here at our christmas store let me give you another one you might want to jot this down Um, our Christmas Eve services are coming. Oh my gosh, I love our Christmas Eve services. We packed 96 traditions into 60 minutes. It's amazing, it's amazing. I love our Christmas Eve services. And we've even changed the days that we're doing them to better accommodate folks who travel around Christmas. So it's really easy to hear all that, and go, oh, I hope that's really lovely, I can't wait to go and play it safe and avoid asking or inviting people to join you and be with you at Christmas. But I wanna encourage you this week, can you just be unsafe for a little bit? And maybe there's a coworker you work with that you go, yeah, why, I've been meaning to invite them. Why wouldn't I? People love Christmas Eve services. Why wouldn't I invite them to go? Or a family member, maybe you just need to kind of get a whole block, a whole row for your family. And you're kind of saying in faith, I'm going to make them come. Whether they want to or not, they're going to be here. Instead of playing it safe and missing an opportunity for somebody to hear about the transformational love of Jesus, will you this week make an ask, make an invitation? I got a guy hopefully showing up at the next service I've been building a relationship with for about a year now. I've asked him multiple times. He has yet to come. He's promised that he's going to come the next service. And to me, I go, why would I, why would I not want him to hear what we just heard and what we've just experienced here today? What, what, what do I gain by playing it safe and not letting him know about the God who's changed my life from the inside out? I hope he shows. And I hope you take this week to invite someone to join us at Christmas. Last one, and then I want to wrap up our time and kind of direct us uh, back to Jesus. The last one uh, has to do with what's going on in our church, specifically in this season. If you've been around here for a while, you know that uh, we are committed to being a church that's for the love. And we have a bunch of folks that have gone all in with God and have said that they are going to financially give to continue to expand our space so that we can reach more people with more and more of the love of God. And so I just want you to look around this room right now. And those of you who are in overflow, you can say, amen. We are out of room here. And here's the crazy thing. You have a seat. Why? Because someone came before you and made room for you. They did. They gave, they served, and you have a seat today. And so this one's kind of simple for us. We go, well, how can we give back to God? How can we make a return on the investment that was made into us. And so we've been a part of giving and committing ourselves to expanding our space because we don't want to be a church that plays it safe. Just kind of huddles up with our little group and says, oh, this feels about right. Let's just kind of hold here. We want to make more room for more people to experience the transformational love of Jesus. And so we've been raising resources and it's unbelievable what you've done. Almost five and a half million dollars already given to what God is doing but we're not all the way there yet. And so in your seat back, there is a little card and we conveniently um, strategically placed it in the Bible just to add some extra weight to it. And so go ahead and grab that if you would. I'm gonna ask everyone to grab a card, even if you filled one out before you're a part of this thing. Just everyone grab a card so the people sitting next to you don't feel left out when grabbing a card. So go ahead and grab a card. This is not a, a pressure thing. This isn't even a financial thing. This is a faith thing. And on there, I want to ask you to grab a pen and start filling it out right now. I'm going to ask everyone, if you would, to fill it out. Just fill it out right now, even if you fill filled it out before, because there's a way that you, we can actually stay connected with you. And there's a couple ways you can give. I, I'm not going to walk through every one of those. You can make a yearly commitment, so it's a one-year commitment to pledge. You don't give anything today. You just commit to a gift towards that. There's a year-end commitment. And maybe you know, oh, I got this bonus coming up, or I know the end of the year I usually have around this. And so there's a way, even if you've already given to Ford Love, say, man, I could give, I could give on top of that. And so I want to give my year end. You can mark that. And then there's a box that this is why I want everyone to fill one of these out, where we can pray for you. And I want to let you know, we actually do. This isn't just thrown on there to seem Spiritual. We pray for you by name. We want to pray for you. We love to pray for you. And so I'd ask you to fill that out and mark however it is that you want to stop playing it safe and really take a risk and say, God, I want to trust you and I want to go all in with you and then let us know how we can pray for you. I mean it. And in a little bit, I want to give you opportunity to come and actually drop this card off here in the front. Don't ask everyone if they would fill it out and mark however it is you want to give or maybe you're already given or how we can pray for you because we want to see God move in such a powerful way and we have a part to play in that. The master has so generously and graciously entrusted us with so much. And so what will you do in response to what he's done for you? And so before we close out our time and have a moment to... Uh, give back to him and commit to him. We wanted to actually stop on our, at the beginning here of the Christmas season to stop and actually remember what this is actually all about, the whole thing's all about. And while we celebrate the baby Jesus at Christmas, we cannot neglect the man The one who taught, the one who performed miracles, the one who loved, who extended grace, who brought in the outsider, who turned the religious world on its head, and ultimately the one who did for you and me what we could not do for ourselves. He went to a cross. He paid the debt of my sin and of your sin. And by the power of God was raised from the dead and sealed the deal that you can actually be in relationship with God. Call him your father. That's significant. In fact, it's central to everything we believe here. So every month we stop and we just remember that reality because we're so prone to forget. And so in a moment, we're going to pass these elements around. Maybe you're familiar with the communion elements, but it's going to be a little cup and a little uh, cracker, a little gluten-free cracker so everyone can play. We want you to grab that. We want you to grab a cup, and I want you to just hold it. I'm going to pray, and in a moment, we're going to pass these elements out. Just hold it, okay? And then I'll come back and lead us through this. What I want to do first is I want to just pray for you. Pray for us that we would stop playing it safe and that we would experience the happiness, the joy that our Father God has for us, every single one of us. Let me pray for us before our volunteers come. Jesus, thank you that you did not play it safe. You could have. You could have so easily played it safe, but you didn't. You went all in, all the way to death, even death on a cross and by the power of God, we're raised from the dead so that we could be raised into new life with you. And so that's what we celebrate this Christmas, our Noel, our new light, our first light that brought light into darkness and gave possibility to all of our hopes and dreams, reality through the cross and the empty tomb. So Jesus, we come now to see what you have done, what no one else could do, what you did for us, how you went all in for us, so that we could in this moment go all in with you. So we love you. We receive these elements with reflective and grateful hearts. It's in your name, by your body and your blood that we pray. Amen.